Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for being our merciful and compassionate God. We pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear your word, hearts that are ready to be changed by it. And we pray that your words will be an encouragement to us and a comfort to our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you, uh, some of you may know me as, um, as someone who's pretty young. I'm under 30. That's pretty young. <laughs> some of you may know that I'm a student. So I'm a student at the moment. I attend a Bible college in Newtown, but I live far out in the west in Parramatta. So to get to college, I have to catch, a, catch the train. And just in this last week, on Monday, I was catching the train, and I noticed something on the train that just deeply distressed me. In front of where I was sitting in the train was this happy, little, joyful girl, beautiful girl. She was probably only two years old. She was sitting in a pram, and she was happily eating a banana. But what distressed me was when I noticed that she didn't have any fingers. Her hands were deformed. She was probably born that way. I don't know why, but seeing that just broke my heart. It's probably because I'm a parent now. I have two young kids myself, and this little girl was probably almost the age of my daughter Esther. Seeing that just broke my heart. She didn't seem to be bothered by it at all. She had no fingers, but she was still able to eat that banana, and she was just very, it was a joy to watch her. She was just a happy little girl. But inside, my heart was actually aching. It was so painful to see this little girl and to actually think about it, to think about will this happiness last when she goes to school? Will she have friends? When she becomes a teenager, when she becomes an adult, will she get married? It, just, it was just so painful just to think about that. And so I thought, this should not be. A beautiful little girl like this should not have been born with deformed hands. It's just not right. And so I thought, why did God allow this to be? Just a couple of weeks ago, I was asked this very same question. A couple of weeks ago, I went on a Moore College mission down to Moore Bank. I, uh, uh, we served at an Anglican church there, and I live with an Indian family, a great family. They're lovely people. Fed me a different curry every night. It was just brilliant. <laughs> Can't believe how many different varieties of curries there are. But anyway, one afternoon, I had the chance to sit down with my billet, and we got to chat. She told me about her life uh, back in India and her family. She told me that she has two sisters and one brother. But one of her sisters committed suicide. And her brother, the one who carries the family name in India, he died in a motorbike accident. And so as she recalled this, this story to me, she asked, why does God allow these things to happen? I could sort of see tears in her eyes. She was recalling how hard it was to grow up not having a brother and the sister that she knew. And she told me how her father often blames the mother for buying that motorbike. I could see tears in her eyes. It was just heartbreaking to hear that. And so she asked me, why does God do this? 
Her parents are godly Christians. Her parents love God. So she asks, why does God do this? And to Christians. Suffering is tough, isn't it? It's hard to suffer. So let me put it to you. Why does God allow suffering? And why does God allow Christians to suffer? Christians who love God. Why does God allow us to suffer? And when we do suffer, how are we meant to respond? What are we to think? Does God still love us? Is God still that compassionate and merciful God? What are we to think? What are we to do? Well, our passage today helps us to think just about that. And James in this passage tells us in the face of suffering, we are to remember two commands and two examples. So just two commands and two examples. So now let's open up our Bibles and we'll turn to our passage. So the first command that James gives here is to be patient. So why did James command this? Well, it helps us to understand a bit of the context. Now, just before our passage, James has a go at these rich oppressors, these rich non-believers who hoarded their wealth, who took advantage of their workers, and who oppressed them. And James was having a go at them. But our passage starts at verse 7. James here switches his focus from those rich oppressors and he now focuses on the brothers, that is, the believers, the Christians who actually suffer at the hands of the rich. And what does James tell, tell these Christians who are oppressed? Well, he tells them to be patient. Now, don't you find that a bit odd? I mean, a bit unfair. These Christians were suffering unjustly. It wasn't fair for them to suffer that way. But James' command to them was to be patient. Now, it just sounds unnatural, doesn't it? If I were being oppressed, I want to, you know, retaliate. Maybe do some Bruce Lee on them. <laughs> I want to get back at them. It just doesn't make sense to be patient. But that's James' command here, to be patient, to wait on God. So we must ask, why did he command this? Why did he command for them to be patient? He better have a good reason, right? Well, James tells them, it's because the Lord's coming is near, that Jesus is returning, and so they are to be patient until Jesus returns. Have a look at verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. You see, when Jesus returns that great day with all his mighty angels all things will be made right all injustices in the world will be done away with all wars will end all terrorism will stop all evil will be dealt with and all believers will be brought back into glory to heaven to be with our god forever and in heaven there will be more no more tears no more death no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. You see, Jesus returned that, that great day in the future. is so great that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul suffered to the point of death. 
This is what he says. He says that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So James was reminding them that though suffering is tough now, it's really hard. He's not denying that. They are to enjoy it, to be patient, because when Jesus does return that great day, it will all be worthwhile. Now, James actually illustrates this to us. He illustrates to them what it means to be patient. He considers the farmer. Now, in Palestine, a farmer depends on the rain that comes in autumn. The rain in autumn helps um, uh, prepare the soil and it helps germinate the seeds. And the farmer, likewise, uh, waits for the rain that comes in spring and that helps swell up the grain and gives the farmer a good crop. And so James was here telling them that it would be silly if the farmer was just to throw in the towel as soon as he sows the seeds. You know, it would be silly for a farmer to think, I've sown the seed, where is my crop? I want it now. I don't want to wait. Forget the rain. I want it now. That's just silly. That's stupid. But instead, the farmer must be patient to wait for that rain. It will come, that rain. And when that rain comes, the farmer will get his crop. All the waiting will be worthwhile. We see this in the second part of verse 7. Have a look at that. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. James is teaching here that patience is not futile. That rain will come, and when that rain comes, it will be all great. The crop will be great. And likewise, Jesus will come. And when he does, it will be great. It will be awesome that day. Now in verse 8, James restates the same command as before. You too be patient. But he also adds now some extra words. And stand firm. So James was commanding them to be patient and to stand firm in their patience, stand firm in their faith in God, to not be blown or tossed by the wind when they're facing suffering, but to stand firm. And the reason that James gives for them to be patient and stand firm is just like the one before, the same reason. It's because Jesus' return is near. Jesus is coming soon. Look at verse 8. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. So that's the first command of this passage. First command to Christians, be patient in the face of suffering, because the Lord's coming is near. Second, man, second command, verse 9. Don't grumble against each other. You see, when times are tough, the natural temptation for us is to grumble against each other, to, to grumble against God, rather to endure and be patient in that suffering. I mean, this might remind you of the Israelites. The Israelites during the time of the Exodus. They were in Egypt, they were slaves, and so they cried out to God, and God heard their cries, God answered them, and God sent Moses to them, who, who eventually delivered them from slavery. But what happened after they were freed? What happened as they journeyed towards that promised land? Well, straight after crossing that Red Sea, they started to grumble and complain. 
What are we to eat? Why is this water so bitter? We're hungry. We'd rather die back in Egypt where there's plenty of food. Do you actually bring us to the desert so that we're first and uh, 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 hunger to death? The Israelites, they grumbled. They complained. They expected things to be all good right there and then. They didn't actually see that God's great promise was to be in the future at the promised land. They couldn't be patient. They couldn't wait. And so they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. But in fact, their grumbling was against God, wasn't it? It was against God. They were doing the opposite of being patient. And so James is here warning Christians against grumbling against each other. Warning the Christians who read this letter. And you can imagine them grumbling because there were these rich oppressors who were oppressing them. They will be grumbling. Why do the rich get it easy? Why, God, are you giving me this tough life? I thought you loved me, God. But James is telling them, do not grumble. So that's the second command. Do not grumble. But then again, we must ask the same question as before. Why does he command this? It just doesn't sound natural. I mean, if I'm peeved off, I want to express it. I want to tell someone, you know, that's just being Australian. <laughs> so why does James make this command? Well, the reason he gives for this command is just the same reason as the one before, the same reason for why we are to be patient. And that is because the Lord's coming is near. Jesus is at the door. But James, he also adds another word. Do, do you notice that? The Lord who is at the door is also the judge. And so when Jesus does finally arrive, that great day, that awesome day, is also judgment day. Have a look at verse 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. You see, Jesus' return is at hand. He's at the door. All that's needed is for that door handle to just turn and when that door finally does open who will Jesus see when Jesus looks at you who will he see will he see someone who endured suffering patiently but joyfully or will he see someone who grumbled and complained and was always disgruntled and then who will you see when that door opens Will you see your saviour who will bring you back to your home, to your heavenly home? Or will you see the judge who will punish you for how you lived a disgruntled life, grumbling all the time? There are two entirely different consequences. So James in this passage makes two rather simple commands. Be patient and do not grumble. And what's his reason? It's the same reason. It's because the Lord, Jesus, the judge, is near. Now James gives us two examples of how people have been able to endure suffering patiently. This is to help us, motivate us, that living patiently without grumbling is possible. So he tells us here of the prophets who spoke out in the name of the Lord and 
and of Job, who persevered through all his trials. So firstly, the prophets. The Old Testament is littered with prophets who suffered. They spoke out in the name of the Lord, and these were words that people did not want to hear. They were words of judgment, of condemnation. People didn't want to hear this. People didn't want to hear that they were bad, and so these prophets suffered. Take Isaiah, for example. He was cut in two by the king of Judah. Micah, he was martyred at the hands of the king of Israel, his own people. Amos, he was tortured, he was martyred. Elijah, he was hunted down, he feared his life. And Jeremiah, his life was so tough, he takes the cake. He cried out these words. Cursed be the day I was born. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? That describes Jeremiah's life, a life of pain and suffering. And for preaching out these words against Judah, he was stoned to death. So that's just a small snapshot of the suffering lives of the prophets. But despite their rough life, they endured it. They were patient. They were, in fact, in fact blessed in their suffering. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? They were, in fact, blessed, that you could be blessed in your suffering. They were considered blessed because they suffered and they persevered. We see this in verse 10. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. Now the second example. James here tells us of Job. Now Job's life was a roller coaster. Job was a righteous man. He loved God. He honoured God. And so all that he experienced was of no fault of his own. At the blink of an eye, he got robbed. His servants were massacred. All his children died in some natural disaster. And that wasn't all. Job had these painful sores all over his body. He had a tough life, a very tough life. He did nothing wrong. Can't imagine life, a life like Job's. But Job persevered. He was bitter with what happened. He couldn't understand why God would do such a thing. But he never let go of his hope in God. His hope that God is compassionate and merciful. And so he persevered through all his suffering. And in the end of Job's life, his perseverance was blessed. God was compassionate to him. And he became extremely wealthy. God replaced his children. He got seven sons again and three supermodel daughters. And he lived to an old age. And we see this in verse 11. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now notice there how James ends this passage on being patient in suffering. He makes clear to us that God is full of compassion and mercy. You see, the compassion and mercy of God the goodness of God is tied with the coming of Jesus. So the motivation to be patient is knowing that 
when Jesus returns, we will fully see crystal clear the compassion and mercy of God. With the prophets, they were martyred. Many of them were killed. Did they miss out on God's mercy and compassion? Well, they didn't. Because one day, when Jesus does return, they will be raised back to life and brought to glory. What about Job? Well, he did experience God's compassion and mercy, didn't he? His wealth and children were restored at the end of his life. But it's really not until the return of Jesus that Job will clearly see that God is truly compassionate and merciful. This knowledge of God was motivation enough for the prophets and Job to persevere. And so James uses their example to teach us to be patient in the face of suffering. Now, just as James commanded these things to those first readers of his letter, these commands apply to us in just that same way, doesn't it? And that's because we too suffer, don't we? We suffer too. And so we are to heed these two same commands. Be patient and do not grumble. Rather simple, two commands. One fact of life is that there will be suffering. That's the natural consequence of living in this fallen world. And the thing is, Christians are not immune to suffering. The natural disasters that take out non-Christians take out Christians as well. The the car accidents that kill non-Christians kill Christians as well. The cancer that strikes down non-Christians strikes down Christians as well. And that goes with all things of life. Financial problems, relationship problems, health problems. We experience all those things too. And these things are painful to experience. We're not immune to suffering. In fact, being a Christian actually makes us more susceptible to suffering not any less. That's exactly what Jesus teaches, isn't it? Because we don't belong to this world, and because we don't belong to this world, this world will hate us. This world persecuted and crucified our Lord, and so we too will be persecuted because we bear the name of Christ. Just take the life of all the apostles. Tradition has it that most of them were killed, were martyred, except the apostle John. James, the brother of Jesus, he was thrown from the temple tower and he was clubbed to death. Thomas, he was lanced and then he was burnt. Matthew, he was axed to death. Andrew, Philip, Jude and Simon, they were crucified just like Jesus. Peter and Bartholomew, they were crucified upside down. James, Matthias and Paul, they were all beheaded. Now we might not experience suffering to that extreme though christians today still do a lot of them a lot of our missionaries still do but we can safely say that suffering is just a part of christian life it's to be expected so what are we to do when we face suffering well just like what james has been teaching us in this passage what james commanded those christians who were oppressed james commands us too in the face of suffering, firstly, be patient. And we can be patient because we know that God is good, that he's compassionate, that he's merciful, and we'll see that crystal clear when Jesus returns. 
Because when Jesus returns, all our suffering will end. That will all be a thing of the past. Our lives may be messy now, may be in turmoil now, but will all be made perfect. We will go home to heaven to be with God forever. I think we can see our life like a big, long pregnancy. According to my wife, who's pregnant at the moment, Yvonne, being pregnant is not very pleasant. You get morning sickness. You, your smell goes all weird. You start smelling things and it's all weird. You, you have all sorts of weird cravings. You always feel fatigued, always feel tired. You get stretch marks where you don't want them to grow. And you get bigger and fatter and heavier. In a good way. <laughs> and when labour actually comes, it's very painful. But one day, when that baby is finally born, you're overjoyed. You'll then realise all that patience, all that waiting was all worthwhile when you hold that baby in your hands. And so one day, Jesus will return and his return is near. So we are to be patient now because when that happens, it will all be worthwhile. But just as those first readers face the temptation of grumbling, it's the same with us. If, God forbid, I were to experience what Job did, I mean, I just can't imagine how tough, how hard, how painful life would be. I mean, to have all my stuff stolen, that's okay, but worse than that is to lose my children, to lose my daughter and my son. I can't even live life now without them, so I can't imagine how hard that would be. How am I to respond? Grumble, complain, be bitter to those good Christians who have it all good? Be bitter towards God? Well, no. I am taught here to persevere like Job. It's not going to be easy. It won't be easy. The, the Bible doesn't say that it will be easy. But I'm to be patient because I know that Jesus' return is near. And when he does return that great day, I'll be reunited with my children again in glory. So we are not to grumble when times are tough. It doesn't matter how tough your particular suffering is. We are not to grumble. But we are to know that God is compassionate, God is merciful, and that Christ's return is near. So now, back to my question at the beginning. Why does God allow suffering? Why was that little girl, beautiful little girl, born with deformed hands? Why was the, the brother and sister of my billet, why were their lives taken away? Well, just like Job, we don't always know why suffering happens. We don't know the mind of God. It's not our place to know the mind of God, and, and we can't know the mind of God. We're not expected to. But what we can, do know and what we can do is trust that when Jesus returns on that great day, we will be able to see God's goodness, his mercy, his compassion. And we may see God's good purpose in all the suffering that we've experienced in life. But until that day, be patient and no grumbling. James in this passage gave us two examples to follow. Great examples. 
But I thought I'll end now with a more recent example of someone who did suffer so much but endured it patiently. This is Frances Jane Crosby. She's usually known as Fanny Crosby. She's one of the greatest hymn writers of all history. She was born in 1820 and she died in 1915. So in 95 years of life, she wrote over 8,000 hymns. To put that into perspective, that's almost two hymns a week. That's amazing. I don't think I'll write one hymn in my whole life. <laughs> now, you may know some of these hymns. Um, I may be young, but I'm a bit old-fashioned. I love hymns. I just love them. And some of her hymns are some of my favourites. Uh, some of her hymns are Blessed Assurance, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, or To God Be the Glory. But what's even more remarkable about Fanny Crosby was not the number of hymns she wrote, but was that she was blind from infancy. She was born in New York to poor parents, and just at six weeks old, she caught a cold and her eyes were inflamed. And so her, doc her family uh, looked for their family doctor. He wasn't around, so they found another doctor. And this particular doctor recommended uh, mustard plasters, whatever that is. Mustard plasters, you're not meant to put that even on your skin because it's going to burn. You can imagine what that would do to the eyes of a little girl. So you can imagine she was blinded by that procedure. And what's, what makes it actually even worse was that later on they found out that this doctor was a fake. He was a fraud. He wasn't even a real doctor. She was just six weeks old when she was blinded. Just imagine that, losing your sight because of some fake dodgy doctor. Would you be bitter? Would you be bitter? But that was not the only woes of Fanny Crosby. Her father died just a few months after that. And because they were poor, her mother was forced to work as a maid to support the family. And so Fanny Crosby, she actually grew up with her grandmother, her Christian grandmother. Her early years would have been extremely sad. But was she bitter? Well, listen to this poem that she wrote. Oh, what a happy soul I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. She was only eight years old when she wrote that poem. Such a beautiful poem. At eight years old, I was only doing maths. I can't write poems. <laughs> One time, much later in life, by which stage now she was very famous in America for all her hymns, one preacher sympathetically asked her this question. I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered upon you so many other gifts. To this, she quickly replied, Do you know that if... At birth, I have been able to make one petition. It would be that I should be born blind. The minister thought, what's going on? Why? And she replied, because when I go to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my saviour. This is one lady who suffered so much in her life. 
She was blinded as an infant. She never got to know her father at all. She actually had one daughter later in life, but that only child of her died as an infant. She had every right to be bitter with life, angry with God, but that she was not. Never grumbled, but lived patiently, enduring her suffering, because one day she knows she'll see Jesus. And her hymns are testament to her beautiful patience, her firm faith in God. So I'll close now with the last verse of her hymn, To God Be the Glory. Great things he has taught us, great things he has done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus our Son. The purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see.